So welcome to the Spotlight on Science podcast. I'm your host, Franklin Lewis, a writer with the Daily Emerald. I'm also here with my co-host, Becky Hogue, and I'm also a writer on the Emerald. We're both science writers. <laughs> and we are here to bring you the latest and greatest in science news and research. We've got a great lineup of topics for you today, but we're always looking for more suggestions. So please reach out to us on various social media platforms or on the dailyemerald.com, on this post, wherever you can get in touch with us. Suggest more topics for us. Uh, give us feedback on the podcast. We really appreciate it. The first thing on the lineup today is the Green New Deal. Becky's passionate about this topic. Uh, it has a lot to do with climate policy and what should or shouldn't be done, uh, and, and especially how that relates to Washington and how the actual climate law is passed. Becky, do you want to explain a little bit more about what the New Deal is kind of getting after? Yeah, so it's named after... And maybe after, how it's different from previous stuff. Yeah, so it's named after the New Deal from uh, Roosevelt in the 1930s to improve infrastructure. It was resuggested recently by young uh, U.S. representative... Alexandria Corteva. Oh, yeah, I got the name. <laughs> it me. is uh, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I hope that's yes. pronunciations right. It was proposed, Don't at me. It was proposed by Alexandria Ocasio Cortez to basically change up the economy. It's more than just a climate change policy, it is revamping the economy in a way that is no longer relying on fossil fuel emissions. Now it is. it would just be solely relying on renewable energy and it would bring us to 100% uh, renewable energy by 2030 if we completely follow the plan, which the plan is very um, vague at the moment. Yeah, to say the least, yeah. <laughs> to say the least. Um, and also it's extremely ambitious. Political scientists would argue that it is very, it's too ambitious. It's something that is more realistic if it was heading towards 2050. But the problem is, is that we're not just doing it out of convenience. This is something that's extremely important because if we don't stop our current behavior, then we are going to hit too many tipping points to be able to go back and the earth is going to continue to warm up. Even though it doesn't feel like it's warming up in other parts of the world. Well, yeah, I think the the like, you know, it's it's more about like climate change, right? It's like what that warming does to the climate, which I think is a misconception a lot of people have. Exactly. So there's a big difference between weather and climate, and climate is an overall trend. So the overall trend of the world is that it is warming up, and when things are warming up, it means the jet streams are changing around and pushing cold air where it originally wasn't, um, and basically making the whole world more extreme. So this is something that we really need to act on, and the United States is the second largest carbon producer in the world uh, behind China, and yet we don't have anywhere near as big of a population as like India or other countries, and so it's really just our individuals and how much we consume. It's really the top 1% that needs to change their policies and change their ways. And I'm not speaking about this as a, a biased perspective. I'm just speaking the facts here on this. I would like to point out we are arguing or we're not arguing about anything. We're saying that climate change is a fact and then we're moving on to a conversation past that. So 
That being said, the Green New Deal is something that's very promising, but also very ambitious. Um, But a lot of the Democratic candidates have actually put it on their ballots. Uh, For example, Kamala Harris has spoken about it, Cory Booker, um, Elizabeth Warren has talked about it, I think even Kirsten Gillibrand. So it's coming on the radar of a lot of people. So it'll just be interesting to see how much of it is actually implemented and whether or not people will push forward as much as they seem like they're pushing forward for it right now. And there's a big movement with supporters of this program to kind of uh, go to the Democratic National Convention and really push for this new deal to get through. Um, and I think what you've hit on, which is accurate, is that the key part that's that's new over other kind of climate change policies um, that have been, tr- you know, people have been trying to get enacted for a while is that this is a complete overhaul of not just the way we use energy and the energy we do rely on. It's about like the job industry and the economy and how like that's all also based around fossil fuels. I mean, you've got truckers going on there on fossil fuels and the boats are on fossil fuels, planes are on fossil fuels. Like the way stuff is traded is all based on gas and oil. I think what this plan is getting at, which is unique, is that it is trying to move us off of some of that or at least temper our use of it to the point where we could get to a level where we could start to reverse some of the impacts that fossil fuels have had towards climate change. Imagine which, no gas stations by 2030. That's it's again like you could you could argue whether that's even like yeah. you know again it's like it's it's very important to be ambitious because then you have kind of one negotiate down you kind of are still at a good level. But Yes, I can definitely see the argument that it's overambitious, but I think you have to start somewhere, right? I mean, you right, can't just, right. Yeah. Uh, I sound like I'm like not for it because it's so ambitious, but I'm really excited about it because I think it's something that, again, we need to push for if we're going to hit those. They just they need to iron out the details because yeah. I think a lot of the big critique. I feel like a lot of the stuff is, um, especially with climate change in particular, um, and I think scientists fall victim to it a lot, where it's it's talked about in very general terms, like people need to do a much better job of saying specifically what like this thing will happen if we don't do this. And it's, I get it. It's hard to like visualize that because some of these impacts aren't going to happen, you know, 20, 30 years down the road. And it's hard to visualize that, but speaking in specifics is helpful. And so I think once they put this plan into some kind of like specific um, itinerary or bulletin points that they want to get done with this program um, or the new deal program, um, that'll really help their cause, I think. Yeah, it's funny because scientists like to buffer a lot of the terminology with, and we're scientists, so we're, we're working on being scientists, so we, we're not saying anything against us, obviously. But we tend to buffer, or like saying strict, like sharp realities with saying stuff like, well, more research needs to be done. Right. And that makes it seem very, very unsure, which is why I think climate change is one of those things that's been going on for such a long time as climate deniers have been able to push that it's not true for such a long time is because scientists continuously say, but more research needs to be done. And so people play with that and they think, oh, people are just not sure. It must yeah. be 50-50 when in fact it's 97% of scientists believe that climate change is happening and humans are the cause. Yeah, we could get down the whole road of, you know, like how the media covers climate change. That's a whole, that's a whole another podcast. Um, yes. Let the, us know if you want that in the comments. <laughs> we can go on a rant about that. I think that's going to be a Becky solo rant on one of these <laughs> podcasts here. Um, other somewhat related news, the um, now that the government shutdown is over, at least for now, the NSF, the National Science Foundation, is now back on its feet. 
um, and has funding again, but they are not out of the woods yet. They still have a backlog of all these promised grants totaling $220 million in requests that they have to sort through and, and determine who gets all this money. They also have to go through and assign people to research panels. Um, they have to read through new research proposals, and that could also take more weeks, if not months. Um, I'm getting this info from Science News, and that's just what they have not been doing while the government was shut down because no one was at work. They have to then do that and then catch up again on all the stuff that they're not doing. Now. It's like they're going to be behind forever. So, And that's assuming the government won't get reshut down. Right, exactly. I mean, this is like, again, this might be like a quarter of like a science gripe and that doesn't really affect a lot of people, but it really does because this research down there, again, it's like all these like long-term kind of downstream effects where it's mm-hmm. like, if the research doesn't get funded on time, that means the actual research itself gets delayed, their materials don't arrive on time, and you don't end up seeing this research done until by the end of it, you add all the delays up, it's like 10 years later when it should have been it should have happened, you know, in, in two years versus 10 years. Um, and that can even affect people at the university level, too. You have a lot of um, undergraduates, graduates, and professors that get funding from the National Science Foundation. Exactly. So it's very it's very important for a lot of people. It happens in the medical field and computer science and a lot of scientific industries that people rely on daily. Exactly. And how about consumers too? Who people who get the stuff from this research that eventually you know research has to turn into something eventually. So a lot of times too, the technology we're at a day and age where the technology of uh, or analysis technology is moving so fast and advancing so quickly that sometimes the what you planned on doing is actually irrelevant in two years or something. So you needed to reevaluate your data analysis techniques. And so that, again, when research gets bumped back and delayed, it almost gets delayed like twice fold because then when you actually get around, you get the funding to do the research, you have to then reevaluate everything you're going to do. Then you have to like send in a different proposal and then you can, it, you know, there's a whole argument to be made that there's you know, too much regulation around that. But that's, again, another podcast. So Science is full of monotonous tasks, yeah. and having a, a backlog of monotonous tasks is even worse. <laughs> Let's move to, uh, uh, I guess, a, I'll say a lighter topic, although that's kind of ironic. Becky, you found this article about alligators using rocks to stay underwater longer, not unlike a diver. In a way. Yeah. Why is that ironic? I'm curious where this I'll, I'll explain it. And then you have to explain why. It's well, ironic. I said I said a lighter topic. Oh, so like, OK. Yeah. So the funny like thing is, is that they heavy use rocks, rocks are heavy to, to sink. So it's yeah, it's similar to a diver's belt. Um, unlike you need a soundboard in here. I would have done a rib shot. But on ting. <laughs> yeah. So. It was originally thought there was two trains of thought because scientists noticed that alligators and I think crocodiles too, but mostly alligators were swallowing rocks. And there's been other organisms like birds that would swallow rocks to help with digestion. So that was one train of thought. Mm-hmm. But uh, the scientists recently found that support for the other train of thought, which is that alligators were using um, rocks to sink to a certain level so that they were able to properly stalk their prey or hide from predators and do all the alligatorish things that they do. So it's technical terminology. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a little fun um, 
example of we're always discovering new things about creatures that we thought we already knew things about. Well, you're underselling this a bit. I mean, this they found that they the that by swallowing rocks they increase their dive time average by eighty eight percent up to that's thirty five minutes longer. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm reading up a bit more about what they actually did. I mean, I'm I'm surprised the uh, I don't know who is the 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 young undergraduate who had to go feed the the alligators the rocks. <laughs> like I don't know, they don't really describe exactly how they got the rocks in like to alligators to eat the rocks. I but. feel like the alligators were in this certain captivity without the rocks, and then they they were able to be tested like without. I think they the were rocks. Fe- they're also fed meals that kind of had rocks like mixed in there. But I think they, I think it was voluntary that they had the rocks, though. Yeah. Because I think maybe they just had them in their captivity. They voluntarily swallowed a set of small stones. Yeah. So it was like the first set, the first time they put the alligators in the habitat, they did not have any rocks available. And so they were just swimming around and then they would test to see how long the alligators dove for. And then they would add rocks to the habitat and then allow the alligators to swallow the rocks if they wanted to, and that would, um, they would be able to test the diving time that way. That's how I assume it probably went. Yeah, I think I think you're accurate. The team said that they, uh, each alligator took 42 dives, 21 before they had the rocks, and 21 after they had the rocks. Um, so I think it was like the same alligators doing dives before rocks and after rocks rather yeah. than like two groups, but it means essentially that same thing even with alligators you can do controlled experiments <laughs> amazingly so I, yeah again they don't say like i don't know how close they got to these alligators and, and whatnot but also like they also don't say how many alligators they used either i mean imagine a pen of like 20 alligators all like in i mean the, keep in mind that we're reading the uh science yes we're not reading we're not the official reading the, uh, yeah so they probably did say that we're just not getting all the information. I, look, we've got a limited amount of time. Give yeah. us, cut us some slack here. Yeah, we're college students. Uh, one thing I wanted to bring up uh, was actually a kind of a U U Oregon tie here. Is that do people say U O or U Oregon U of O? What's, they do all of the above. I think everyone says it differently. Anyway, at the University of Oregon. Dr. Janet Iwasa visited uh, the uh, EMU for a little talk about molecular uh, animation, which I found fascinating. Ooh, um, do tell. The uh, She actually visited, I got most of the information though, she visited my uh, Tropical Diseases of Africa class. Naturally. And she is incredible. She makes these illustrations. If you've ever seen, if you go on YouTube, or for example, or if you've seen in a class and you've got an animation of like, transcription or you've got an animation of a cell like lysing some molecule off, she is the person who makes those videos and visualizes and colorizes all the different parts of it and the different organelles. Um, How does one get into one of those professions? And it's really interesting. So she talked about that and that she said she was a PhD. She was just a me- you know molecular biologist. She had all the scientific background. Um, but as she kind of did her more and more research, she got she really noticed how important um, the visualization aspect of biology was. So she applied to this pretty prestigious Hollywood animation studio. And like it was basically part of her well, she, she didn't apply to that studio. She applied to like a graduate program that allowed her to go to that studio. But long story short, she ended up at a Hollywood animation studio. 
And like like the stuff that you use for like the Transformers movie yeah. or like superhero stuff. I mean, like that's what she was trained in and basically applied all the stuff she used in that the school basically to biology and like to cells. Um, and she, she was, it was funny because she would say that she would ask these questions like, yeah, and that people, you know, everyone else there was interested in, you know, making a movie or something. And she would ask, like, how do you apply that to like a cell, for example? Or like, how do you make the, how would you apply that to the Golgi body here, for example? And and the professors apparently would just give her the strangest <laughs> looks in class. <laughs> um, so, but I mean, she is a super prominent now. She's given a TED talk. Um, she goes to, she's headlines all these conferences everywhere now. What's her name again? Um, uh, J- Dr. Janet Iwasa. I hope I'm not. I hope I'm pronouncing the last name right. Sorry, Janet. But anyway, very engaging person, and it kind of leads me into it. Uh, uh, just a topic that I feel like in the past couple of weeks I've just heard more and more about, which is the importance of science illustration and science animation. I guess is kind of more the more modernized version of illustration. But I mean, if you really think about it, like those images you have in your textbook of what an animal looks like or a, a particular diagram of how some uh, molecular process happens or some molecular pathway, those illustrations stick in your mind forever. Yeah. And that informs your thinking about that process or that cell or that animal forever. And they're and, so important for documenting scientific information too. I mean, anatomy-wise and even uh, ecology-wise, that's it's big. It's huge. And I mean, I think the the biggest takeaway is that, that someone out there has to take all the scientific info and be like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to draw this. And it's fine if I'm probably going to be wrong in two years, but I have to take the artistic liberty to draw it. And the other thing, too, is that what uh, uh, Dr. Iwasa was saying was that, you know, a lot of times she would have people come up to her in conferences and say, like, did you make that animation of the uh, HIV virus? And she was like, uh, yeah, you know, it's like, yeah, well, you're wrong. And <laughs> so Dang. you have to deal with these people who are so, because people have in their mind when they read some article, I mean, you, and it happens to everyone, you read something and you have this mental image of what it's like, but you don't actually draw it. Someone out there has their mental image of what they have. And then they're the ones who are tasked with drawing it. So if that, image on the paper doesn't match what someone had in their head some scientist who thinks they know everything you can clash heads you can see how people clash heads really easily and kind of the these animators and artists who are tasked with doing this i mean m- many of them it's not i'm not implying that they just are forced to do it but it's their job obviously but they're kind of caught in the crosshairs being like uh like don't kill the messenger like i'm just it's just my job to draw it like talk to the scientist whose work it is right so um, there's a big, you have to be willing to be wrong. You have to be but also being really accurate while also kind of being willing to change your idea. It's kind of a, it's a really interesting profession to me. So I'm hoping at one point we can have a, a guest on here who can really specialize in that and talk to that even more. So yeah, that's a great idea. I, do you have any uh, artistic capabilities? You know, I, I said that uh, both my parents are very visual people. Um, my mom is a graphic, just trained in graphic design. My dad's an architect, or landscape architect. I feel like I've traded in my artistic talents for like practical stuff, like height and eyesight, and <laughs> I, I, I guess like sort of semi athleticism, like very marginal athleticism. <laughs> so 
I, Do your I, parents I, have none of those? So, I mean, I'm not taking any shots here, but like both of them need glasses hardcore. Um, it's like a total trope now that my, every restaurant we go to, and my dad will like forget his glasses in the car. It's just like a oh, given. Yeah. But like we'll also we, we can't read the menu to him because that's like demeaning. <laughs> so he just kind of struggles through it. But um, I think a lot of kids can relate to that with their parents. Yeah. I know mine certainly are. That's funny because I feel like there's a slight opposite for my family. Um, well, I also have good eyesight. My parents don't. But my brother and I are more artistic than my parents. My parents are both computer engineers. And so my brother is like a really good artist. And I'm all right. Um, I did take a biological illustration class at mm. the Marine Institute. Um, and that was really cool because then I'm able to actually go out into tide pools and stuff and more accurately record what I'm seeing. So, yeah, I mean, it's also like, I mean, people are good at different things, right? I mean, I, yeah. there's a difference between having l- little artistic talent versus being able to appreciate art too. Like, I feel like I can appreciate a lot of different art. Oh, yeah. Especially like modern art. That's a whole nother story. We're, we're this, we're this is getting derailed. Yeah, we're going. My uh, my only other thing is that there is these cool insects that fling their pee from trees. Um, now for our humorous science of the day. <laughs> Come on, I I have to get this in here. This is too funny. Like the, these insects, um, it's actually kind of a serious issue. So maybe I shouldn't be joking, but um, I'm sorry. I'm going to I'm going to take the joking route here. Some that's the, the first sentence of this article is some sap sucking insects can quote make it rain. Oh my god! They're known as sharpshooters, and they fling droplets of pee while feeding on plant juices. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of admirable in a way. They're multitasking. <laughs> yeah, maybe they're also and doing so competition then, for. Uh, oh, you bet they're you bet they're competing. They're, you you know those so insects. So they're adolescent boys. These these you insects know are they're competing. Boys. They're they're competing to see how far they can spray their pee off the tree. Um. And basically, the news part of this, though, is that they've scientists have figured out how they, you know, create the sprays and how they spray it. Whatever. We don't care about that. We care about that the fact that they exist and that they fling their pee off of trees because this is hilarious. It's actually they they even have a high speed video of them flinging their pee. I encourage everyone to go out there. This is on. This is pulled from science news from students. Go out there, watch the video. Maybe we'll find a way to link it or something. Yes. And it's high speed video. I mean, the 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 fact that they've spent this much time on pea shooting insects is just incredible. First of all, there's a science for everyone out there. Guys. Yes, exactly. So the serious part is actually the pea that they fling. If they infest a tree, apparently it's like a literal spray from the tree, which I don't want to be anywhere near. And that basically the spray can actually take out crops and the predators of these insects. So that's interesting. I guess. Productive peeing. Yeah, um, so it, they're kind of a, I guess they're kind of an issue, maybe, maybe not compared to climate change, but you know, it's it's tomatoes, tomatoes. Really. It depends on what their environment some is people, that they like. Some so. people are interested in overhauling the economy to get us off of you know uh, fossil fuels, and some people are interested in bugs who fling pee. Yeah, you know, there's monkeys that fling that's poop si- and that's, dung beetles. So that's science for you. Um, well, I think we're gonna wrap it up there. Uh, My name is Frankie Lewis, again, signing off. And I'm Becky Hogue, signing off too. Thanks for listening.